Almighty God and Father, we worship you this morning as your son Jesus took the loaves and the fish and multiplied them to become a feast for many. We pray that you would take your word this morning and multiply it for us that we might feed deeply, eating all that we desire, all that we need, and coming to deeper life in your son Jesus. Lift up his name, we pray, and draw us to him. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Be seated. We're dealing with two wonderful stories this morning from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. As we return to our series in the Gospel of John entitled, Come and See. Jesus feeds the 5,000 from five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then he walks out to his disciples in the boat on the stormy sea of Galilee. I want to begin our time by framing it with a simple reality and observation, which is this. The Christian life is impossible. The Christian life is impossible. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or what Paul says in Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Or again, Jesus in John 13, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Do we hear those things? Be perfect, imitate God, love as I have loved. These are not things to which we can simply say, okay, I've got it. I know how to do this and I'm on it, Jesus. No problem, I'll take care of it. In fact, if those are our responses, it's a pretty sure sign that we are lost and don't really understand the nature of the Christian life. A healthy response to this kind of call in our lives would much much more be to fall flat on our face and say, Lord, have mercy. Help. I cannot. I am weak and I am frail. My faith is weary I'll never forget the the story that a mentor of mine told me about his days as a young man at Moody Bible Institute. There was a professor on the campus who was known for his godliness. And one day in between classes, my friend walked up, ran up to him in the crossing the yard and said, Professor, what is it like to be so done with sin? And he said that the professor turned toward him with tears brimming up in his eyes and said, Nathan, I am a sinful man. What an important lesson for a young man setting out on a course of ministry from an older man who knew what it was like to walk with Jesus. When Paul reflects on the nature of the calling on his life, he just cries out in 2 Corinthians 2, who is sufficient for these things? And really, that's the question that all of us should be asking about the Christian life. Who is sufficient? Who is sufficient to go out and to love, to forgive, to walk with God. We are not sufficient for these things. But the great news of the gospel is that God is sufficient, that God has all that we need and that God has power and authority and life and love and that he will give these things to us as we walk with him. Paul continues that thought about sufficiency and he says our sufficiency is from God. Or think about when Paul is comparing himself to the other apostles and he says, I've worked harder than all of them, yet it was not I but Christ that is with me, the grace of God that is with me. Or he reflects on the great mystery of the Christian life in Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Where do our resources come from? What is the power within us? It is Christ in us. It is the spirit in us that enables us to live this life. Paul says, it's no longer I who live in Galatians 2, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus with us, Jesus in us. This is what changes everything. This makes all the difference. So that Jesus can say to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. The life of faith, walking with Jesus, is a life where we recognize our inadequacy and our insufficiency. And yet at the same time, we see God's power and sufficiency to do those things which he has called us to do. It is in believing in and trusting in and walking with this God of power, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, as Paul writes in Romans 4, that we begin to walk in the Christian life. God's life-giving power is on display in the great redemption story of Israel, the Exodus story. There they are, trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's approaching army. Sure and certain death awaits. There's no way out, but God works for them. God works out a salvation for them and parts the sea. And after they go through the sea, then they're marching through the wilderness and there is no provision, no food for them to eat. And they grumble and they complain, but God then miraculously provides for them quail and manna in the wilderness. Miracles of bread and water. That's what the Exodus story is marked by. Then in our passage today, as we come to John chapter 6, we read in verse 4 that the Passover was at hand. This was the time that the Jewish people would celebrate the great story of God's deliverance out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness. They remembered these great acts of God and Jesus then performs at the time of Passover a miracle of bread and a miracle with water. And as the water miracle concludes, Jesus says, Ego Amy, which is usually translated, it is I, but which is literally translated, I am. The divine name, Jesus can bear it. And do we see what's happening in John chapter 6, which comes on the heels of John chapter 5, of course, what Jesus is saying about his identity In chapter 5, after he heals the paralytic, he's accused of making himself equal with God. And from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Jesus gives his great defense, his divinity sermon, where he says, yes, I am fully submitted to and dependent upon the Father, but in that submission and dependence, I share in the divine privilege and competence, specifically the ability to bring judgment and to bring life. And then Jesus, to support that claim, calls three witnesses to the stand. The Holy Spirit, the very works that Jesus is doing, and the scriptures, the ancient scriptures that speak of him and point to him. Then, after making that defense, in this very next chapter, Jesus does two more works that the Father has given him. A miracle of bread and a miracle of water at Passover time. And he finishes saying, I am. It couldn't be any more clear that Jesus is saying, in him, the God for whom nothing is impossible is present. He has come to be near and be among his people. He calls into being that which does not exist, the bread, to sustain life. And he conquers the chaos of the sea, which always signifies the the sin and evil, which threatens God's creation. He conquers the sea to give resurrection life to the spiritually dead. 
These are impossible acts for us. But with God, with Jesus, all things are possible. Or as the angel says to Sarah in Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? For I am. It is God's power that is our only hope. And our only hope in the impossibility of the Christian life. Life with God is full of impossibilities. It is full of moments with our backs to the sea. Full of moments when we're in a kind of wilderness with what seems like no provision. My guess is that right now in this moment, many of us feel that way. Certainly compared to the experience of Christians in Iran or North Korea, it would be a big stretch to call what most of us are going through in our present circumstances suffering. But these are hard and unusual and fatiguing and trying times in the midst of this pandemic. And they're trying on all of us in similar ways and in different ways. I was speaking with a a couple this week and they were reflecting on their experience in the pandemic and they said, you know, there's just this uh, this constant sense of, of, of loneliness. And when they said that, it made sense to me. I understood that. I feel that. And I'm sure many of you do as well. We are cut off from normal habits, from normal routines, and we are cut off from one another in a very real sense. But in any and every circumstance, in all of the impossibilities of the Christian life, God is able. And the question is, do we believe this? Do we believe that God has the power to provide and to make a way? Because this is at the heart of our faith. This is at the heart of the Christian life. And this is the heart and encouragement of these two stories out of John chapter 6. These familiar stories. In our time remaining, I want to drill down into these stories to see four lessons for the life of faith in the domain of the impossible, which of course is the only domain that is offered to us in the Christian life. The first lesson is see the one who makes the impossible possible. We've seen up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus asked some wonderful questions. In chapter one, he says to the disciples, what are you seeking? And in chapter 5 to the paralytic, he says, do you want to get well? He's pointing to the heart. What do they desire and what do they aim for? But here he asks a question in verse 5. Having seen the crowd coming out to him, he asks Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? We're told immediately in verse 6 by John the evangelist that Jesus is just testing Philip. He knew what he was going to do. But his question was trying to draw out that which was in the heart of Philip. And Jesus is saying, look, we're in an impossible situation, Philip. What are we going to do? He wants Philip to see the impossibility, which Philip clearly does, because his response in verse 7, eight months wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bit. And that's a fair response insofar as it goes. We would expect that. But I think Jesus' question is prompting to see something more in Philip. Notice the we. Where are we going to buy enough bread? Philip, you're not in this alone. There is another one beside you, here in your presence, the one asking you the question. Do you see him? Jesus had reason to hope that Philip would. Philip had witnessed the water into wine miracle at Cana. He had seen the miracle of the healing of the official son at the end of chapter 4 and of the healing of the paralytic in chapter 5. 
Couldn't he turn to Jesus' question about where to buy bread and say, I don't know, Jesus. There are a lot of people out here and there's no way we can find enough money to go buy bread for this whole group. But you're the one in charge, Jesus. I'm here to help. Tell me what to do. But Philip doesn't do that. He's so overwhelmed by the impossibility of the situation that he doesn't see the one who's asking him the question. I wonder how often is this our response in the impossibilities of the Christian life? Look, it can't be done. I can't forgive. I can't keep loving this person. I can't be generous with my time. I'm exhausted. I can't break this sinful habit. It's too ingrained in me. I can't meet that need. I can't do what you've asked me to do, Lord. I wonder what Jesus might be asking each of us today. Where is he pointing us to the impossibility of life in him? Not to lead us to despair, not to crush us, but to lead us to see and trust in him as the God of the impossible who is present with his people. In him as the only way out. So see the one who makes the impossible possible. The second lesson is offer what little we have or the little that we can find. Andrew steps in at this point in the story as a needed example and an encouragement in the midst of our shock with the impossibilities of the Christian life. He has no doubt overheard the conversation with Philip and so he speaks up in verse 9 and says, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? This is a a little bit of faith in Andrew and what Andrew has found with this boy and what this boy is clearly willing to give or to lend to the cause, that is enough in the story to provide the context for a great miracle. Here, Jesus, this is what we do have. You're pointing us to the impossible task. What we need is something we don't have. But here, Lord, here's what I've got. Here's what we've found. Where Philip seemingly had no faith, Andrew seems to have a little faith, a whisper of faith. It almost evaporates in the very moment that he expresses it. But how far, he says, will they go among so many? Yet it's there, this nugget, this little offering. And I want to say to you, isn't that what God is looking for? He's looking for a response of faith in us in the midst of the impossible. God, you tell me to imitate you, me, a little, small, finite and sinful human being to imitate you, the God of the universe. I know my own sin, but here I am. I offer you this day, this hour, these next five minutes, Lord. What I have, I give to you. There are seasons of our lives in the Christian life where we feel anything but victorious. Where all we can do is mutter to ourselves, keep me, Lord, keep me. Hold on to me in this moment. I've got just two small fish and two small barley loaves, five small barley loaves. But you can have it, Jesus. You take it, do with it what you will. Here I am, Lord. I mean, quite honestly, God, I don't see how this is enough to meet the needs. I don't see how what I have can get through what you have called me to in my life. I don't see how this will cover the brokenness and the pain and the heartache in my own life, let alone in the lives of the city around me and the world around us. But here, I offer you what I have. And Andrew's little bit of faith, of course, becomes a springboard for a great miracle. For God to show us what God alone can do. You know, we tend to want to highlight the heroes of the Christian faith. And we should. I'm as encouraged by those stories as probably each of you are. 
But John's gospel gives us a kind of counter to this tendency with a story like this. And it should be wonderfully encouraging to all of us. In our little faith, here is all we have, Jesus. Can't see the difference that it will make in the face of a hungry and hurting and gospel-needing world. In the face of homelessness in Boston. In the face of an estranged son or daughter who continues to make choice after choice that's leaving a wake of pain and destruction in their lives and in others. But here... Here it is. Here's what I've got. And then God works. God miraculously multiplies and provides. I know a, a man, a young man who's single and lives with a number of roommates. And for many years, as I knew him, he had a couple of roommates who were just in very difficult places. And we would have lunch from time to time. And he would share with me just how hard it was to be in that situation. But he was an incredible example of someone who just stayed present at the end of his rope time and time again who would just stay who would be up late into the hours of the night helping one of these roommates process what they were walking through and this didn't just go on for a few weeks this went on for years but he stayed faithful and I knew him long enough and knew the story long enough to watch those two roommates come to a place of healing and wholeness living faithful Christian lives where they were glorifying God and I was so humbled by this man's example Here's what I have, my presence in this long story, my presence just to be present, to love, to pour out. Even when I don't think I have enough, that was what he would say. And God used that and multiplied that offering to bring an abundant harvest and provision. I wonder what it is in your situation where God is just asking you to offer what little you have, to watch him and to see. We long for the renewal of our city. I long for the renewal of our city, for the gospel to go forth in power in this city. And I'm blessed at Park Street Church with a great view in my study of the city. And I make it a practice daily of praying for Jesus to be lifted up above everything else in this city when I look out on Back Bay. We long for the renewal of the church in this city. We long for God to make us one across ethnic and denominational lines that together with our brothers and sisters in Christ around Boston, we can proclaim him and lift him up. We long for the renewal of our own hearts and our own lives, for God to pour out his spirit upon us and make us new that we can be a part of that work of renewal in our city and beyond in our world. These things, though, are too great for us. They're too big. They're impossibilities. And we can look around at our own resources and, and we see how meager they are. There are too many problems, too many obstacles, too many barriers. And I wonder if Jesus would ask us, in the, if you share those hopes with me, he would ask us, where are we, how are we going to bring about this renewal? And he almost might ask us that question as he asked Philip so that we would look and see, look, we don't have the resources within. There's no way that we have what it takes, but you, Jesus, as he wanted Philip to look and as Andrew barely saw Jesus you have what it takes you have the resources we cannot this is impossible but Lord with you all things are possible and so here here's what we have here's our lives here's our week here's our Monday here's our Tuesday take it Lord and do with it what you will we trust you we believe and as we do this Jesus will multiply so that's the second lesson offer what we have or what we can find which brings us to our third in the Christian life of impossibilities, don't take over. Don't take over. There is a temptation, and it's a constant temptation, especially when we confront the impossibilities of life. 
to take control. We want to take control. And when we take control, we turn things upside down because there's only one who's really in control, and it's not us. Instead of offering the little that we have in the service of Jesus for the accomplishment of the impossible that only God can accomplish and that is possible with him, we often turn the Christian life into enlisting Jesus and his power to accomplish our own ends. This is what the crowd does. They, they see the miracle. They see the provision. And in verses 14 and 15, they witness, they, they say, this is the one about whom Moses wrote. This is the prophet who was to come, written about in Deuteronomy 18, which by this time had messianic overtones and hopes associated with that passage. So they then forcibly, in verse 15, we learn they forcibly want to make him king. They've seen his power. And now they think they know what needs to happen. It's time to make him king, to usher in the kingdom, to bring the long-awaited liberation and relief from our suffering at the hands of the Romans. But Jesus will have none of this. His time had not yet come. And instead of offering them his transformative power as he had done in the bread miracle, what does he do? He withdraws to a mountain by himself. The best way to banish God's presence from our lives in the midst of the impossibilities in which we live is to take control, to employ God to help us achieve our small and cramped purposes. Jesus will never be appropriated to our ends. He will always and only ask us to join him in his impossible ends, possible through his power alone. This is a subtle but prevalent shift that can take place in our hearts, instead of working with him and alongside of him and under him, we say to Jesus, look, I'd like to enlist you in my plans, in the attaining of what I think I need. Just a little Jesus superpower infusion into my business, my career, or this relationship. The problem, of course, is that our ends, as we define them, are so often tainted by sin. We want safety, comfort, security, glory, fame, success, we want these things that only God alone can give us in himself. But instead of coming to Jesus and offering the little that we have, we enlist him in our less than godly but understandable causes. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jesus doesn't care about your family or your business or your financial life. I do believe that he in fact does, that he cares about every area of our lives. But he aims to care about them and to be involved in them in a way that brings about his own glory and his own kingdom and doesn't seek to attain your and my, and my likely less than godly aims. Jesus and his power will never become a pawn in our plan. Instead, he always retains his authority and invites us into his story, into something better, something far more dangerous, far more impossible, far more amazing and life-giving than anything that we could ever dream up on our own. It's all actually a bit scary, this life with Jesus. Because it's impossible. Because it's only possible in dependence, in walking by faith. And that brings us to our second story in this text. And our final and fourth lesson, which is simply don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know how easy it is to be afraid. We're afraid of so much. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of suffering. The disciples are in a boat in the midst of a storm. In verse 18, we read that a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. 
Some of you have probably been in a boat like this. I have not. I usually prefer my boats on rivers where the shore is accessible on both sides and not too far away. But I can imagine that it was exhausting and in some ways terrifying. And they look up and they see that Jesus has found them. And they're terrified at his presence too because who wouldn't be? Here's a man walking on the water coming to meet them. Psalm 77, which we read earlier, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Here is Jesus whose path is through the great waters and he's come to meet and be with his disciples in the midst of their storm. And he speaks to them, I am, do not be afraid. How often does God say that to his people? All over the place in the Old Testament. Do not be afraid. Isaiah 43, fear not for I am with you. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Here in the storm, Jesus comes to his disciples as if to say that in whatever impossibilities that we face, however raging the storm may be around us, there is no circumstance, there is no situation that God cannot reach us in and come near to us. He is here. He is in our families, in our lives, in our workplaces, in our broken relationships. He is in the midst of this pandemic with us. And he is saying, do not be afraid. This is great news all the time, but especially in this year of years, such a weird and strange and challenging year. Jesus is here. Are you willing and wanting to take him in? That's what the disciples do in verse 21. And when they do so, what happens? There's a third little miracle in these two stories. And it happens here. It says in verse 21, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is what the gospel of John wants to teach us over and over and over again. Receive him. Be willing to receive him. They bring him into the boat and immediately they are where they were, they were meant to be going. The point is when you receive Jesus by faith and you open your hands to him, that you are where you are longing to be. You are at the destination called life, abundant life. Take him by faith and you receive that for which you are seeking. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing is too great for him. Nothing is too hard for him. So don't be afraid. Of course, we're human and we're afraid regularly. And Jesus knows our frame and is gentle with us. Thanks be to God. But there is a path forward in our lives in which fear is not the dominant mode. In which we can know and enjoy and rest in the presence of our king to whom we offer what we have. This fearlessness is encouraged as we consider in closing when we think about the greatest impossibility. It wasn't these thousands of people on the hillside who didn't have enough bread. It wasn't the people of God trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's rapidly approaching army. No, it was the entire human race enslaved in sin and evil and death with no way out. And Jesus sees his father, offers himself, resists taking over, and courageously filled with faith and trust in his father, moves forward to the cross without fear. Not my will, he says, but yours be done. He lives the way of faith and the father multiplies his offering, his flesh for the life of the world. 
that one loaf to feed all humanity. It is this to which the bread miracle and the water miracle in our stories point. That this impossibility, the greatest of all impossibilities, Jesus will overcome. Sin and death are defeated. Life is unleashed. And this is the point. This is why he came. He offers his flesh for the life of the world, as he'll go on to say in verse 51, that sinners like us should become fully alive, fully free, never to die again. And it's this great victory, a victory that is assured, and the unending abundant life that it brings to each of us that fuels our faith and lack of fear in the midst of this world of impossibilities. Jesus has overcome, and he will overcome. See him. Offer to him what little you have. Don't take over. And don't be afraid. Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out to you. From a place of need and dependence. And we worship you and praise you as the God for whom nothing is impossible. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray, and grant us faith that we might offer to you what we have and watch you miraculously multiply it for your glory, for your purposes, for the life of the world, for the life of the city, for the life of our church, the church in the city. Oh, Lord, we long to see you made known and glorified. And for those of us who are most deeply afraid, Jesus, I pray that you would draw near this day and that we would hear your words I am do not be afraid we need you Lord Jesus we love you we worship you and we praise you amen